Welcome back to Fresh Faith. Today we have a great interview to share with you. Ron Moore and Dave DiDonato had the opportunity to interview Sean McDowell, author of the book, So the Next Generation Will Know. At the Bible Chapel, we are currently in a series called Relevant Faith, where Ron and Dave walk through some tough questions that people wrestle with in Christianity. You can check out this series at BibleChapel.org at any time. Now let's get into today's episode with Ron, Dave, and Sean. Well, Sean, we really appreciate uh, your book, So the Next Generation Will Know. We've been using it a lot uh, this summer. We've been in a series we've titled Relevant Faith, and uh, your book has been a great resource for us. Oh, I'm so glad to hear. That's essentially exactly why we did it, so thanks for using it. And we appreciate you taking some time to talk with us. You know, you've written um, uh, several books focusing on the case for Christ and Christianity, and right from the beginning you say this book is different. Uh, you say yep. it's written to show how to teach the truth of Christianity to the next generation. What I, w- I was interested, what kind of sparked the need of a how-to book, a how-to-explain-what-is-true book, instead of a what-is-true book? Well, I have three kids. Scotty's 15, Sean is 12, and Shane is uh, just turned 7. And part of the need for this book came out of my own attempts as a dad to figure out how to pass on my faith to my own kids. And I kind of figured, gosh, if I can write a book on this and do the research and think about it, it would help me out. And if I have this need, I assume there's other people that do as well. So that was a piece of it. The other piece, it originally started as an idea. I just recognized there wasn't any, like, book that was written to youth influencers not on what you need to teach students, but how to do it practically in terms of worldview and apologetics. Either people said, here's your curriculum, plug and play, or they just said, here's what you need to teach your students. And I just noticed looking out in the market, like, gosh, there's not somebody giving people practical wisdom how to do it. So it's just kind of like finding a need and filling it. At the same time, I really kind of want to figure this out better myself. Uh, And Jay Warren Wallace has such a unique perspective on this. I thought the two of us together... Uh, could hopefully make it even stronger than me doing it alone. Great, great. Uh, Sean, Dave here. Thanks for that. We actually have a lot of parents taking your book and using it, just as you said. And uh, you know, we think I'll about yeah, we we think about young adults abandoning their faith in college. You say that 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 most young people now walk away from their faith while they're still home with their parents. And uh, we just want to ask you, why do you believe young men and women are walking away from their faith in their adolescent and teen years? So you didn't say this in the question, but I think a lot of people would would incorrectly hear this. Yeah. Your question was, I say that a lot of young people leave the faith while they're still at home. And that is true of young people who leave the faith. Hmm. Most of them start the process while they're at home. But it's not true that most young people growing up in the church are leaving their faith. That's just an important distinction, because we don't want to be too alarmist. Right. So our point in the book is saying, and there's a lot of data that backs this up, is that kids are building their theology at 6, 8, 10, 12 years old about God, about the afterlife, about relationships. And they often formally leave the church, if they're going to leave the church or leave their faith, when they leave high school and go out in the university, go to the military, go in the business course, because there's no longer the external pressures there, parents, community, church, 
helping them live that out. So when those externalities are gone, they just kind of live out the theology and beliefs they had always developed, even though they probably didn't express them. Hmm. So that's why, partly in this book, we're saying we got to start this stuff very, very early and intentionally to just do everything we can to help pass on the faith to these kids and minimize those who leave. I appreciate your uh, distinction in that question. Um, Sean, a lot of research says that uh, kids, uh, teenagers, do uh, uh, not always abandon, but at least walk away from their faith in college. Uh, not saying they're not going to come back, but um, there's some formative years there when they're making a lot of decisions and they're kind of away from their faith. Uh, you, you wrote this book to help parents and influencers really prepare kids for college. Do you think do you think that's one of the reasons kids kind of walk away from their faith in college because of a knowledge issue? Or you think it's just more of a kind of a heart issue, just kind of, you know, they're free and kind of feeling their oats and kind of figuring out life on their own? I think there can be a range of issues that are often overlapping because, you know, human beings have free will and different experiences. There's often a number of reasons that a young person will disengage their faith or the church. And one reason, like you say, is when kids go off to college, they're building their own identities. They don't want to wake up Sunday morning and go to church. It costs money. It costs time. They're having fun. So many just prioritize other things. And then as they get older, especially having kids, oftentimes come back to the church. This is a phenomenon that's happened with previous generations. Part of the question with Gen Z is, now that people, not, more people are single and not getting married, people that getting, are getting married are getting married later, and those who are getting married are having less kids. Are we going to see, as Gen Zers and young millennials get older, are we going to see the same return back to the church we had seen in previous generations? And as far as I'm aware... The data is still out on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I had to take a step back and ask, answer your initial question, I would say it's probably at its heart a worldview issue that we haven't really helped this generation understand what the Christian worldview really is, how it's true and good and beautiful, and how to navigate an increasingly secular culture in light of our Christian commitments. When kids aren't equipped with that knowledge and those skills, I think it just increases the chance they're going to disengage their mm-hmm. faith and disengage the church. I appreciate that. I, 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 um, I wanted to kind of move to the social media aspect. Throughout uh, your book, you mentioned over and over and over the, the loneliness that Gen Z is, uh, is feeling and experiencing, and yet the most connected but the most lonely, just kind of counterintuitive. Help us help us kind of get a grasp on that. How, how, what does that look like and feel like when you have all these people you're interacting with and yet the heart is lonely? Well, I think we're seeing an increase in loneliness, not only in Gen Zers and young people, but across virtually all demographics, even more so women than men, a lot of that is due to social media. So it's not unique to Gen Z. It's just they happen to be the first generation that's been raised that are digital natives with smartphones. And when you're that lonely and your identities are not formed and relationships aren't healthy, you're much more fragile to the effects of loneliness than, say, other, other groups might be. So 
so I think for this generation, what happens is, yes, they're online. I mean, studies vary somewhere between 7 and 11 hours a day, depending on how we judge social media and digital technology engagement. They're on it nonstop. And what happens is if you don't have boundaries in your life when you use it when you don't, if you don't have healthy relationships, then these kind of different mediums start trying to fill that relational void that God has designed us to have. So I think social media is a wonderful thing. I use it. I benefit from it. I actually love it at times. But I don't look at that for my identity and my relationships in the same way many other young people do, because you can't fill them up. And so there's all these relational counterfeits, so to speak. It might be video games. I'm not saying video games are bad, but they can become a counterfeit that gives a life meaning that doesn't find meaning in healthy relationships with God and with other people. So especially because this generation is so young and fragile, this can be really damaging on their understanding of themselves, which is why some studies show Gen Z sees themselves as the loneliest generation. And one other example could be is I get criticized all the time on social media. It's a daily experience for me. And I, I'm 43 years old. I have a great relationship with my wife, with the Lord, with friends. Like, I just have, I, I, I'm not a robot, but I have the ability to deal with this kind of criticism and online hate because of the stage I'm at in life and just some life maturity. But if I take myself back to when I was 11 or 12 or 14 or 16 and still trying to figure out who I am, and you get bullied online, you get sent all these messages about fulfillment from the number of likes and the shoes you buy, that, and kids can't ultimately get what those things promise to them, no wonder they feel so lonely. Right. Sean, so that's, uh, that's really good. I want to... I wanna hit on what you mentioned, the importance of relationships. I really enjoyed in the book your connection with relationship and truth, uh, that parents should seek to be the best apologist their child knows. And I, I like a statement you make. You say that relationships are the runway on which truth lands. Can, can you talk about that yeah. a little bit and also the best ways for, for parents and grandparents to connect to their children and grandchildren? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked this question. Uh, I, I live in the world kind of an apologetics. I work in a master's in apologetics program, and people in that world tend to say, truth, 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 give them an argument. But then I do a lot of work with students and go to youth ministry conferences, and they're like, relationship, relationship, relationship. Yeah. And I'm like, you guys are both half right. Jesus came in grace, and he came in truth, relationships and truth. In First Thessalonians 1.9, it says, Paul not only gave the gospel, which is, truth and content, but we gave you our very own lives, relationships. So it's a mistake to look at our kids and say, I'm just going to build relationships with kids. That's all they need is to know I love them, but not teach them truth. It's also a mistake to just teach our kids truth and not do it lovingly in relationships. We're trying to find that balance within the book. And the reality is, all of us best learn truth through relationships. We're more likely to listen to somebody. There's experience. There's trust. And so we have that whole chapter basically saying, here's 10 practical ways to build relationships with this generation. And we're not trying to give people a list of 10 things they have to do. We say, just take one or two of these and try them. If it doesn't work, try another one. But one thing, you know, for parents is to not only invite your kids into your world, 
but also go into their world. That's one of the things we talk about. So find out what is important to your kids and spend that time with them. I mean, it's not rocket science. My daughter's into volleyball, and Saturday she is in seventh grade. She plays in the club. She's like, yeah, will you come hit and bump with me? Honestly, I didn't really want to. On my Saturday afternoon, there's other things I was planning on doing. But I'm like, my daughter wants to spend time with me. We can do this together. I'm going to sacrifice what's important to me and spend time with what is important to her. So we give a list of 10, but one is just to say, let's really focus. What are my kids into? What's important to them? Where do they spend their time? And sacrifice of our desires and step into their world and spend that time with them. And the more time we spend, the more right, so to speak, we have to be heard and to speak truth into their lives. Sean, I'd, I'd uh, ask you just for a second to speak to youth pastors uh, listening. I know it, uh, for a youth pastor, it's so tempting sometimes just to, um, you know, have a, have to get the kids there, right? To have uh, entertainment and, and fun and all this stuff going on. And I'm not saying they shouldn't do some of those things, but I love what you say. You say in many Christian youth groups, the emphasis is more on friendship and fun with the sermonette wedged in between the game, the fellowship, and the pizza. And I know a lot of people can relate to that. Talk about just um, the, the, the kids today, uh, Gen Z, uh, that they, they, they need to be entertained in a certain sense. They need to be, uh, needs to be attractive, but they also need to be challenged. Just talk about the, the, the marriage between good, biblical, solid teaching and then the opportunities to apply that in real life. Sometimes what we do in youth ministry is we say, all right, what's going to attract kids? Music, fun, parties, food. Because that's what's attracting kids to other things. And now, there's a time and place to do that, but as a whole, if that's the philosophy of your ministry, I think that's a mistake. That's, in some ways, taking the forms of the world and slapping a Christian uh, kind of message on top of it. I think we need to take a step back and very seriously say, what is unique about the Christian faith, and how do I develop a lasting faith in my students? And frankly, if you have a 30-minute seminar session once a week, that's not going to compete with seven hours a day of worldview training that, I'm sorry, uh, media training that comes through social media. So partly what we do in the book, and I, I hopefully a youth pastor would consider just looking at the last chapter and just thinking about it, there's a lot of ideas of saying, here's how you can transform the way you do youth ministry and very intentionally teach worldview to this next generation. Because reality is, most kids in the best youth group basically have a secular worldview with some very servicey biblical ideas slapped onto it. And I'll give you an example. This morning I was leading a class with 10 high school students, juniors and seniors, great students at a Christian school. I simply asked them to define freedom. And they basically define freedom as doing whatever you want to do without constraint. As long as you want to do it, nobody stops you, you're free. And I said, okay, does it make any difference whether God exists or not to how we understand freedom? And they said, well, freedom is doing whatever you want to do as long as nobody stops you. But in the Christian circle, now you have consequences. So just think about that. The only difference between a secular and a Christian worldview difference in freedom is that Christianity adds consequences to the choices that you make. 
I thought, what an anemic understanding of freedom. So I stopped and I pointed out to them that God exists. He's created us. And we're only free if we live as God designed us to live. So the world wants freedom from. But Scripture is, no, we have freedom when we live out in relationship the way God has designed us to live. So my point to these pastors is, probably most of your students have a deeply secular worldview without even realizing it. And if we don't get deeper to their beliefs, deeper to their worldviews, and help them understand what's good and true and beautiful about the Christian worldview, it's not going to make any substantive difference in how they live now, and certainly not make any substantive difference in how they're living in 5, 10, 20 years, whether they're going to church, whether they're Christian, how they live their marriage, their work, etc. So my challenge is to go deeper and find a way to teach worldview to this generation. And I think there's some ways to do it. And when you do it, an awful lot of students will respond and rise to the challenge. Great. Sean, that's really good. I want to cling to that word, uh, worldview, for a second. Uh, something you say in your book has hit home with me, just the how the age of skepticism has dropped significantly. Uh, in your book, you talk about how we, they can fact-check us. I think about I was preaching this weekend that a junior higher can literally fact-check me while I am teaching from, from the <laughs> stage. Can you talk about that? Yep. You know, just that... You know, they say Gen Z, you know, 4% now has a biblical worldview. You started telling us there, but how, how should that impact our approach as the church in developing the next generation? Well, I think we have to be very, very intentional about how we teach. And I try to ask myself, I say, let me take a step back. A worldview are assumptions and beliefs that somebody has about reality. And they often operate on the subconscious level. So I think most students in Christian circles has kind of a secular worldview, but they don't even realize it. They're not even aware of it because they're taking their cues from the culture we live in rather than from Scripture. So I want to figure out by asking my students questions, by interacting with them, by doing research, what are the beliefs my students actually hold? And how do I counter those beliefs with the goodness of a Christian worldview? So that frames the way I teach on everything. So if you're just giving a talk on whatever it is, uh, think in your mind, okay, what are probably the assumptions that my students have that they've adopted from this secular culture? And they might not even realize it. How do I bring to the surface that lovingly they've probably adopted these assumptions? Those assumptions aren't from Scripture. And then show why the scriptural view is what is true, is what is good, and what is beautiful. So that takes a little extra work. It takes some thoughtfulness. It takes some trial and error. But that's how we have to approach teaching this generation, because they have, like you said, so much access to information that they're checking things nonstop. How do we counter the core heart lies with biblical truth and give them wisdom how to navigate the culture that they live in. Sean, one of the things uh, I really appreciate uh, that you say in your book, when you're teaching youth, we need to provide two whys for every why. First of all, I think that's just a great teaching principle. But drill down on that a little bit. What, what do you mean by that, and why is that approach so important with Gen Z? I was teaching a conference with my dad maybe 
four or six months ago. And the whole weekend was on a biblical view of sexuality. And a, a student, I think it was in junior high, came up to his mom and said, he goes, I want to thank you. I've heard that sex outside of marriage and pornography is bad, but I never knew why. For the first time, you explained to me why. Well, it's not enough to tell kids today, don't have sex before marriage, uh, don't look at pornography, don't have an abortion, whatever commandment we want to talk about. We have to give kids the two whys behind that. And one of those whys in particular is just the reason God designed the relationship to be the way that they are. And a why in terms of how you actually live this out practically in your life. So I want to know why this is relevant and why this is true. So with students, that really helps for the worldview component. So not only give an evidence, say, hey, here's how we know the resurrection happened, but let's give them two whys. One why is because the entire faith rests upon whether Jesus has risen from the grave or not. Everything rests on the resurrection. Helps students understand why. Second, why does that matter for me? Because if Jesus has risen from the grave, this practically shapes the way we face death. Death doesn't have the last word. Life goes on for eternity. So for the what of the resurrection, for example, students have to know why it's important and why it practically relates to how they live their lives today. When we make those connections to students' lives, then that truth becomes personal for them and they can begin to own it. That's great. You know, the, the, the why question really uh, relates to, to real life. And, and in your book, you guys spend a, a lot of time uh, dealing with the, the training of Gen Z and what the content of the training should be. And you guys use the, the acronym TAB, Theology, Apologetics, Behavior. Uh, talk about why this component is essential uh, in, in the content, and then talk about a couple creative ways you offer uh, to really train the, this, uh, the Gen Z uh, generation? Sure. So this tab is something that my co-author came up with, and it's really simple to remember. When we look at this generation, T is for theology. What are the theological truths they need to know? A is for apologetics. How do we know these theological truths are actually true? What's the defense of them, the explanation for them? And then B is behavior, and this isn't a moralistic behavior kind of just do this and don't do that. The B means to stand for how does this play itself out in the way people live. So here's the theological truth of the Trinity. Here's the apologetic defense, the A. And then behavior, it shapes how we understand who God is, how we love God, and how we love other people. So that's what the tab is meant to show that can shape our parenting, our teaching, etc. Uh, practically, I'll just give you one practical example, uh, and we can come back to more if you want to, is one of the things we're arguing in the book is not to add a whole bunch of stuff on top of what pastors, youth pastors, Christian school teachers, and parents are already doing. When we wrote the book, we figured no one's going to add a new program here. But if we can help people more effectively and creatively utilize the opportunities that are already there, that would be a win. So when my son was 14, he came to me. He wanted to see that movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, about the rock band uh, Queen. Mm -hmm. 
and PG-13, he's 14, so I was a little bit skeptical. I knew there was an agenda in the movie, but I read about it and thought, okay, here's the deal. I'll bring you and one of your friends, if when we're done, and your friend's parent says it's fine, we come home and we just talk about the movie. I want to know what you saw. I want to know what you liked. I don't know if you think there's any Christian themes in it, or if you ever thought the movie had an agenda. I just want to talk through the movie. And he goes, sure. So we went to the movie, came back, sat down, probably a half an hour, and we just talked about it and reflected upon it and discussed it. Well, had I not been thinking about intentionally engaging my kids with worldview, that never would have gone through my mind. Now, some kids might agree to this, some might not, but for my son, it worked. And we had a positive experience relationally of helping him to think Christianly. Those are the kind of opportunities that we're encouraging people to look for because there's more opportunities around us if we open up our eyes and prayerfully look for them. Sean, that's that's really good. And uh, we want to wrap up with one more question. We, we really appreciate this. And, uh, you know, like Ron said in the beginning, uh, your book, So the Next Generation Will Know, was, was one that really helped guide us for this, uh, this summer series we're doing, Relevant Faith. And the, and the tagline we have on this series when we were promoting it to the congregation and community is that the Christian faith is not a blind faith. And that is something you hit on uh, in your book and, and a lot of the books you've been a part of is that the Christian faith is the reasonable faith. So just to wrap up our time, what, what would be your short answer to someone who says, asks you the question, is the Christian faith a blind faith? My answer would be to say, if you mean by the Christian faith what's actually taught in Scripture, what Jesus, Paul, and the apostles modeled, then I don't see how you possibly come to the conclusion that Christianity teaches a blind faith. Uh, if you just look in the Scriptures, one thing you see is Jesus did miracles. Why? Because Jesus was, number one, good. He was restoring creation. But he was giving signs and evidence so people could have an informed belief in him. Look at the end of the Gospel of John. It says, many other things have been done, you know, which are not written in this book, but they're written so you might believe, and by believing you would have eternal life. In other words, the signs reported, the miracles Jesus did at Cana, feeding the 5,000, are there to show people he actually is the Messiah. He is God in human flesh. Your faith goes beyond reason, but it's not unreasonable. It's certainly not blind. So Scripture calls us to a faith that goes way beyond reason, but it's no less than reason. And there are good reasons to believe that God exists, Scriptures are reliable, and Jesus is God in human flesh for anybody willing to seek and find those answers. Sean, that's great. We can't tell you how much we appreciate you uh, taking time to be with us. Uh, thanks so much for your book. It's been a great resource to us. A quick question, uh, what's your next book? Can you give us a little preview? <laughs> Ooh, that is a good question. <laughs> I have not signed a contract yet or made it public. Oh, man, I really <laughs> want to tell you guys. I'll tell you what my second book is. Um, I have two books I'm working on. One will be over the next six months, and then after that, I'm updating my book, Ethics. It'll have a different title, but I'm getting about the 15 to top 20 top ethical issues students are wrestling with, and just writing thoughtful, biblical, scientific, and philosophical ways for them to understand how to think about this and how to live out their faith on these controversial issues. So 
that'll be out. That's probably a year and a half out. Uh, when it's out, we'll we'll come back on and we'll talk about that as well. <laughs> that'll be great. That'll be great. Hey, thanks again. We really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks, Sean. We're so thankful to get this time to chat with Sean. If you want to check out the Relevant Faith series, visit BibleChapel.org. And also, don't forget to check out Sean's book, So the Next Generation Will Know. We'll see you next time on Fresh Faith. Thank you.